godliness. We're looking at godliness this morning. What, 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 is, what is godliness? Now, first of all, I want you to uh, see something. We're going to see as we go through this chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6 is what we're in. We're going to see uh, Paul mention to Timothy uh, four different times and use this word godliness. Nine times in the six chapters, he talks about godliness, but four times just in this chapter, he talks, he talks about godliness. Now, there's a hermeneutical principle. That's the study of Scripture, the interpretation of Scripture. When something's mentioned numerous times in the Scripture, it's what? It's important. It's mentioned often because it's important. So this topic we're looking at today, very important, godliness. What is godliness? Well, godliness... Uh, one commentator I read this week, and I agree with him, is in the Greek word uh, infers this. It means God likeness. It means God likeness. And what it, what it's saying is, when it talks about godliness is is our pursuing of being more like God. We're all created in God's image, but we're marred by sin. We're scarred by sin. And the wonderful thing is, as we walk with God, God takes away the scarring and He makes us more and more like Him. And Romans 8.29 says, we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. First Corinthians, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 actually says it this way. It says, as we behold his face, we're changed from glory to glory into his image. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, we're exhorted about this, uh, this God that we serve. It tells us this, Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, the word imitator there, interesting word, it means, uh, literal uh, is, uh, language is mimity, and it means, means uh, mimic. And what it means is, as we walk with God, we're going to learn more and more about His holiness, about His righteousness, about His godliness, and we are to imitate God. We're to become more and more like Him, God-likeness. Now, doesn't mean we're God. We're always going to be sinners saved by God's grace. But we are in the process of being conformed to his image to be more and more like God as we walk with him. And that's godliness. And one of my favorite verses in the Bible says, our job, Matthew 6, is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added out to us. And this is a very important topic of what we're looking at today, godliness. And we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts, which are yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, God says, again, as I am holy. Godliness. Now, does that mean we're going to be perfect? No. You'll never be perfect. You, you, the sin nature will be there fighting the spirit, and there'll be a struggle. Then the good you want to do, you don't do, and what you don't want to do, you do sometimes. But we are people that are pursuing godliness. We are be- people that are pursuing holiness because our God is holy. And it's, again, an important topic, not only because the Word of God exhorts us to be holy, not only does the Word of God exhort us to be pursuing godliness, but also it's important because we're living in a culture that even among Christians and churches, there's a, a veering away from godliness, holiness. We're seeing even in, in, the, in the Christian culture today, it's, there's churches that are, are compromising this area of godliness to the point that they're playing secular rock songs during the worship services, and not, not, not just neutral you know, pop songs. We're talking about evil songs. Oh, it's because we're trying to bridge a, a gap to the ch- culture. No, no, no. You're just being stupid is what you're doing there. 
You don't bring secular rock songs into an Easter service and attempt to reach the world. Because if you do that, you're not reaching the world. The real world's reaching you. You're not changing the world. You're just adapting to the culture around you rather than changing the culture. We're living in a culture where Christians are even using four-letter words because it's hip and it's cool. And the Bible says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which is good for building others up according to the moment that might give grace to those who hear it. Right? We're told what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what it's in our heart because out of the abundance of our heart, our mouth speaks. Christians should have a different language than the rest of the world. And we're even seeing pulpits where preachers are using four-letter words in their pulpits. Some preachers are called the swearing pastor. No, no, no. That's the stupid pastor. Please. I know I'm, 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 I'm being pretty frank here, but I think that's stupid. Stupid to be compromising to try to reach the world rather than changing the world. Jesus reached the world, and he was holy. Jesus reached the world, and he never compromised. The Bible says he was without sin. And look at the whole world he's reached. Hundreds of millions of people around the world worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he never compromised. So this, 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 what we're looking at today, godliness, very important. Because we're not only exhorted to be godly, but we're living in an ungodly age that even Christians and churches are going away from this pursuit of holiness and this pursuit of godliness. So let's jump right in, church. Let's get right into this. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, if you're there, say amen. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren, but they must serve them all the more because of those who partake of the benefits are believers and beloved. Teach and preach, Timothy, these principles. Now remember, Timothy's a pastor. He's pastoring this flagship church of the Roman Empire, uh, which was the church in Ephesus. It's a church that Paul put more time into than any other church on his mission trips. He spent three years there. Now he's delegated the leadership and the pastoring of this church to um, Timothy. And he's writing this pastoral epistle, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, to Timothy while he's pastoring. And it's interesting, he's saying, first off, Timothy, let's deal with the issue of work. Now, he's talking about slaves, those who are under the yoke of slavery. In that culture, Roman Empire, first century, uh, the slaves were the manual labor. They were the blue-collar force of the Roman Empire. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, all throughout the Roman Empire at the time. And so there they were the employees. They were the ones that were doing most of the grunt work, most of the, the labor of the culture. And so it was an interesting dynamic, though, because in that culture, slaves were widely accepted into the church of Jesus Christ to the point that some of the churches actually had slaves as elders and as pastors and leaders. And then these slaves would be risen up to leadership and then they'd have their masters come to church, and then their very masters would be under their leadership as pastors or elders. Interesting dynamic. And so Paul's addressing that now. He says, now, when you have this culture where there's slaves being leaders over masters, how does it work Monday through Friday? How should those slaves work then with those masters? He says a couple things. Honor them so that the name of our God will not be dishonored. 
He says that to the slaves. In other words, just because you're in leadership over them in the church doesn't mean you go out in the world Monday through Friday and disrespect them as your bosses. Bosses honor them, and not only that, serve them, it says in that second verse also. Serve them well. Here's the first aspect of godliness. We need to be godly in our work. And the, and the inference to us in the 21st century is we don't have slavery today, although some of you go to work on Monday and say, man, I'm a slave to that guy. But we, have, we're, we got bosses, don't we? Just like these slaves had, had bosses. And the way we're supposed to work in our work as Christians is we're supposed to uh, honor those that are in authority above us. We're not supposed to disrespect them like the rest of the world does. You go to work and everybody's yeah, respectful when the boss is there, but when the boss isn't there, they're, just, they're, give, they're, they're dishonoring him in the way they even talk about him. Don't give in to that. Be different. And not only that, serve in your workplace well. Interesting, the slaves in that culture, the Christian slaves, we know this from history, Gained a high, were paid more. If you bought a Christian slave in the first century, you paid more for that Christian slave than a non-Christian slave. You know why? Because they were better workers. The best workers in the marketplace should be Christians. Because Jesus said, let your light shine in such a way they may see your good works and they too may glorify your Father in heaven. I just got a clap there, amen. <laughs> Actually, he's hitting a bug or something, I think. But... But listen, 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 listen. Please listen, church. You're not going to have a strong witness and you're going to dishonor the name of your God if you're out there and you're being like the rest of the workers in the marketplace and you're disrespecting your bosses, you're not honoring your bosses, and you're not working hard. I, I did a number of summer jobs working my way through college and seminary and my dad always did a good job of finding me the worst jobs, I tell you what. I think he purposely found me really tough jobs because he wanted me to stay in school and get my degrees, you know. But I, I don't work with out in the world today because I'm a pastor. I work with Christians and I work with you guys. I mostly have Christian con, you know, um, connections today as a pastor. That's my job. But I remember when I was out there in the world working these secular jobs. I remember, first of all, the first week I would start a secular job. And again, my dad got me jobs like one, one summer I, I worked the whole summer doing road construction, you know, jackhammers and shoveling asphalt and 12-hour days and stuff. Another summer I, got, I was painting houses, college paint crew of painting exterior houses. Another summer I actually got a job painting billboards, the rust-oleum on the structures of billboards around the city of Chicago. Um, one summer I attempted to be a waiter, and after a few weeks I went back to painting houses. That didn't work real well for me. But I, I had a number of different jobs. But I remember every job I, I learned as a Christian that was a serious Christian, I learned the first week as I started a summer job, home from college or seminary, the first week it was important for me to take a stance that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Because if I didn't do it the first week or two, I, it was easy just to fly under the radar and be a camouflage Christian for the rest of the summer. And so I'd start a summer job, and I'd make it clear to the guys I was working with or whatever that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, because I wanted them to know who I stood for. But then also, I remember as I worked these jobs, I remember that the harder I worked and the more value I brought to the table and the more I showed respect for those who were in authority and bosses in that culture, the more respect I got from the other people I worked from. And if I didn't work hard and I got lazy and I sloughed off, I could talk to always blue in the face about Christ, and they would just have an attitude, just shut up. I don't want to listen to you. 
But as I worked hard and brought value to the table, and I was a hard worker, what I, re- what I realized is even these non-Christian people I'd be working with, when they had crises, when they had marriage problems, or they had issues with their, with their family or whatever else, they would sometimes even come to me and ask me advice, or they'd ask me to pray for them in their, in their crisis or whatever, because I was working the way I was supposed to work. So if you want to make a difference for Christ, where God's put you in the marketplace or wherever you're at, be the best workers out there. Show honor, as it says in here, to those that are in authority in your, in your workplace. Honor them. Work hard. And may your work bring the light of Christ because let your light shine in such a way that others may see your good works and they too may glorify your Father in heaven. That's what Paul's addressing here with these slaves. Don't just because you're in a position of leadership, you're in the culture of the church, you're working with other believers, slough off. Honor those that you're working for. You know, be respectful and work hard. Amen? Let's go on now. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, this is Paul saying to Timothy as the pastor, those of our Lord Jesus Christ with the doctrine conforming, here's our word, to what? Godliness. There it is. He's conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind, depraved of the truth, who suppose that godliness, here's our word again, is a means of great gain. Here's the second thing Paul's talking about. He's going from work now to doctrine. Now what's doctrine? Doctrine's instruction. It's in teaching. And he's saying, Timothy, be careful with these false teachers that are coming into the church already in the first century, including the church in Ephesus. And and Timothy, you could spot these false teachers by the way they operate. And what does he say about these false teachers? He says they're conceited, they're full of all this kind of pride. Also, it says about these false teachers, they're controversial. And not only are they controversial, they're bringing different doctrines. There's a saying, and I agree with it. If it's new, it's often not true. And if someone's bringing in doctrine into the church that's not Orthodox Christianity, is not a part of the fundamentals of what we believe for centuries within the Christian church, don't just buy into this wind of doctrine that's blowing through the church. Be careful with different doctrines. But also it says different doctrines, false teaching will be characterized not only by conceit and controversy, but the fruits it produces. Fruits of, notice the fruits of, of false teaching. Um, envy, strife, Abusive language, evil suspicions, constant friction between men of depraved mind, deprived of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of great gain. And others, false teachers will be in it for the money. They won't be feeding the flock, they'll be fleecing the flock. And the fruits will be envy, strife, all kinds of problems around their teaching. Now, this is the second thing we've got to be godly in. It's not only our work, but what we believe in our doctrine. And how do we guard ourselves against this false teaching that oftentimes blows through the church? Through the sound words, it says, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where are the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ found? In the Word of God. And that's why we're to be people that long for and hunger and thirst, not only after godliness, but God's Word. We're to be people that love God's Word. And people that, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it we may grow. 
the respect to our salvation. Interesting, when it says sound words there, the word sound there in the Greek literally translated means healthy. And as your people that stick with the book and the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll become healthy Christians. Because this is, this is the source for spiritual nutrition. You get fed from God's word. And as you're in God's word, as you hear God's word taught, and as you read God's word, as you meditate on God's word, as you study God's word, as you memorize God's word, it will bring health to your soul and your spiritual life and your godliness. It was an important tie between getting in God's word and feeding on God's word and living a godly life. They go hand in hand. That's why I love Calvary Chapel. Because what are we all about as a church? God's word. And every time we get together, what do we do? We break open the book, we study it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we get fed God's word. And you know what? As long as this bald preacher is up here teaching, you're not going to get the latest, hippest thing. You're not going to get the latest doctrines that are blown through the church. You're going to get the infallible, inerrant, inspired, God-breathed word of God, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help us, God. We're going to stay in the book because I want healthy, sound Christians that are living godly lives. And this is where you're going to get it from. We're going to get it from here. And you know what I get all the time? I, we have the privilege of having some of the best Bible teachers in our movement come through this church at times because we have our men's conference we host for all the South. And I usually tag one of those guys, one of our you know, keynote speakers, and I'll have him come and teach here. We've had the privilege of having guys like Mike McIntosh, the founder of the Calvary Chapel in San Diego, teach here. We've had Pancho Juarez from Los Angeles teach here. We've had uh, some great teacher, David Guzik, who writes the commentaries that people all over the world read. We've had him teach here a couple times. And you know what I get a response from these great Bible teachers when they teach here at Calvary Chapel Lexington? Almost to the person after I have lunch with them, after they teach the services, and they say, boy, your church, John, they love God's word. And it's fun teaching at Calvary Chapel Lexington because people at your church, we could tell, are attentive to God's word and love to be taught God's word. Well done, church. That's great feedback. Those, that's, that's singing in the ears of Pastor John when I hear that. Because when you're being taught God's word, people, even guest speakers, could pick up on the fact that we have a church full of people that are hungry for God's word and want more of it. That's where you're supposed to be, Amen. Like, again, like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the world, that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation. Those sound words of this book help us in godliness. It will produce godliness. As a man thinketh, so he is. And as you feed on this book, it will help you live godly lives. Amen? Amen. All right, but verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge, plunge men into ruin and destruction. Notice this verse. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But notice, flee, Timothy, from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, he says two things to Timothy here. Flee and pursue. Flee, Timothy, from the love of money, because the love of the money is the root of all evil. Now, question, is he saying money 
is the root of all evil? No, no, no. The love of money, literally translated, money love is the root of all evil. And it's caused many to wander away from the faith, is what Paul's saying to Timothy. And what it's saying there is flee from money being the primary passion and love of your heart. Jesus put it this way. He said, you can't serve God and mammon. You're either going to serve the one and hate the other or hate the one and love the other. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there will your heart be also. And so guard your heart from having the materialism that characterizes the rest of the world. Make your primary love in your heart, not stuff, but Jesus. What's your greatest commandment, Christian? Love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And if you love money and stuff more than God, it can cause you to wander away from the faith because it's an idol. The first two of the Ten Commandments, have no other gods before me, God says, and don't worship vain idols. And it's not saying money's wrong. Money, money is neutral. Money could help the kingdom of God. Money could advance the cause. Money could, could bring missions. Money could bring ministry. Money's okay. But the love of money, where you make your world revolve around stuff and materialism and money, it can cause to all kinds of ruin. Flee from that and pursue. Pursue righteousness. Pursue faith. Pursue love. Pursue Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and help you live a godly life. The temptation of the world is to live by the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Scripture says, no, flee from that. Pursue Christ. Make him the love of your heart. This church that Timothy is pastoring within just a few decades is going to go off to the point that they're addressed in the book of Revelation by Jesus himself. It says, church in Ephesus, I know your deeds. They're good deeds. I know you're still serving me, Jesus said, but I have this one thing against you. What was it? They left their first love. And Jesus said to him, repent. Do the deeds you did at first. Go back to loving me with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That might be a word for some of you here this morning. You're still in church. Praise the Lord, you're still in church. You're still a Christian. But what's the love of your heart? It should be Jesus. Don't let other things divert you from that, you know? Make that the primary love of your heart. Because everything else will lead to a wandering of the faith. Hmm. Keep fighting that good fight of putting Jesus first. You know, I... um, I don't know if this Christmas thing makes me think of family a lot or what, but I've been thinking of my grandparents a lot lately, this Christmas season coming up on us. And I was thinking about this, this thing of making sure that I'm pursuing Christ more than stuff. And I thought about my, one of my last walks with Grandpa Hoppy, the guy I'm named after, John G. Hoppy Sr. I was up in Hoppy Pine Vista, they called it, his lake place up in Wild Rose, Wisconsin. And, and I was taking this walk, and we walked for like at least a mile down this country road together. And he was already in his 80s. And he was trying to impart some wisdom to me as we were walking down this country road together, pine trees. And I, the, the lake that he had this little cottage on was just beautiful. It was called uh, uh, Hills Lake. 
And there's hills going down to this sand bottom, spring-fed lake, and it's paradise to me. And I remember that was my favorite place in the world. Part of it was just my grandpa Hoppy being there and just this guy loved God and was just a real influence in my life. But I'm walking this country road with him. I'll never forget it. And um, grandpa's towards the end of his life. And he's trying to impart some wisdom to me. He talked about how he had, you know, come over here. He's just a young boy. He's an immigrant from Holland. Came, seven years old, he was on a ship with his mom coming over here to meet his dad who was walking, working in Chicago stockyards. After, after middle school, he, qu- he had to quit school to support the family. He started working at Chicago Stockyards in seventh grade. Then he built this whole real estate company that was really successful. He got his real estate license when he was 20s, went through the Depression, then built a real estate company, and God blessed. He was a strong Christian. He, he was an elder. He actually helped us start the first Christian Reformed Church in Wheaton, Illinois, where Wheaton College is at. He was one of the founding charter guys that started the church there. And, and I remember him talking to me on that country road. I'll never forget it. And I was just a young man at the time. I said, Chip. And he started recollecting about all the ways God blessed him with resources and wealth. He was a millionaire by that time. And he said, you know what? When I got, Chip, he said, when I got in the real estate business, I made my first $50,000 I was able to put in the bank. He said, this was in the 1950s. He said, man, I thought I had everything I needed. I thought that was it. He said, it wasn't. It wasn't what was important. It was, it was an empty bag once I got it all. And then he said, then I retired. I got to 60. I had enough real estate development and everything else. I could retire, and I, I, I had this lake house here in Wisconsin. I had a condo, a beautiful condo in Chicago, and then I had a place on the beach in Fort Myers, or no, Sarasota, Florida. He said, when I got all three of those things, and I didn't have to work anymore, he said, that's it. I thought, man, I got everything I need. He said, it wasn't. It wasn't what I needed. And he said, and it drove me back to the fact that the, what I needed more than anything else in my life was my faith and my family. And that's what the Lord directed me back to. That's what's important in my life. You know what he's doing there? He was telling me as a young man, Chip, that's what should keep your focus. Faith and family. Put God first. And that's what you're supposed to do in your life. And I said, I was listening. I was listening with open ears. I said, that's what I need to focus on. Keep God first in my life. And that's a part of being godly. Have no other gods before him. Don't worship the idols of this world. And keep being people that are putting God first in family. And we'll stay on track. Amen? Amen. And that's what it's saying here. Flee from the stuff of this world. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't give in to the love of money. Keep putting Christ and God first. And then he says this. Oh, I skipped a whole section. Oh, don't want to do that. Put it in reverse. Ready for reverse? Verse 6. It says, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by what? Contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, which with these we shall be what? Content. Don't want to skip that. It's going back to the fact that what should be our source of contentment in life? Now, the word contentment, interesting word there. It means self-sufficiency. Be careful with that. You're not su- sufficient in yourself. You're sufficient in Christ. And when you have Christ, and you go back to what I was talking about earlier, putting him first, and, and you focus him as your primary love and passion of your life, what happens is you have self-sufficiency. You have everything you need. 
And that's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 and 13. He says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content, there's the word again, self-sufficient, in whatever circumstances I'm in, I know how to get along with humble means, I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can, here's, here's a great verse, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through who? Christ, who strengthens me. Paul's saying this, I've learned a secret. It's a secret of contentment. And contentment, he says, is not based on your circumstances. It's based on who you're going to for your sufficiency. And it needs to be Christ. Remember what Jesus said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and out of his innermost beings will flow rivers of living waters. And he also said, hey, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, man. Let's think about my other grandparent that I just really loved. So my, my mom's mom, Mimi, this week. And she was an example to me, especially as a young Christian, of contentment. Now, you don't understand, my, my grandma on my mom's side was a preacher's kid. She's a PK. My great-grandpa on my mom's, mom's side was a Christian Reformed uh, Dutch preacher back in the day. And she was raised in a Christian pastoral home. And Mimi was a great example to me of what we're talking about here, godliness and contentment. I remember uh, growing up just being, my parents would leave my sister and I at Mimi's house on the weekends a lot of times. And I just saw the fruits of the Spirit in Mimi's life over and over again. And then I saw also a serenity of soul, peace. It's just so fun to be around her because she just emanated not only Christ, but just peace and contentment. And it was just a, was just a refuge place for me of just rest and peace when we go to Mimi's house because of the peace that she had in her soul. And then I remember after I came to Christ, uh, Mimi had some circumstances. My grandpa, who we called Papa DeBoer, uh, got emphysema, and he was on a, a respirator where he couldn't, couldn't breathe without oxygen. It's almost like he was drowning for like a couple years before he died. He just, he couldn't breathe. He had to stay on oxygen all the time. And I remember watching Mimi as a Christian now, as knowing she was a Christian. She didn't lose her peace because her peace wasn't based, her contentment wasn't based on her circumstances. It was based on her personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And even the mess of having a husband that was dying from emphysema, that couldn't even breathe without oxygen, she maintained peace because she can do all things through Christ who gives her strength. And I watched that. And then after that, I remember Papa passed away and she became a widow. And for several years, she got Parkinson's and she had this thing going on where you're shaking with Parkinson's. And when she walked, she couldn't take full strides. She'd have to walk like this because of the Parkinson's. And Mimi never lost her peace. The circumstances, life was thrown at her, didn't get her off of her contentment because her contentment was found in Christ. And that's important, church. If you want to have contentment, your source for contentment can't be your circumstances. It has to be Christ. Some quotes I read on this this week, some great quotes. It says, contentment is being at ease with with where you are and being thankful for what you have. Contentment is inner sufficiency in spite of external circumstances. I like this one. Contentment is satisfaction with just the basic necessities 
of life. And it's interesting there because it says if you have food and clothing, you got everything you need to be content. Actually, it says food and covering. The word covering means food, clothing, and shelter. And we got that here in the United States, don't we? (laughs) I was reading this week that if you're in just the middle class income bracket here in the United States, if you're just making what middle class people make here in the United States, you're a part of the the richest 5% of people in the world. You're you're part of the wealthiest 5% of the whole world if you just are part of the middle class income here in our culture. And that's why it's saying, hey, if you have food and covering, be content. And also it says there, uh, interesting, not only food and covering, but it says we brought nothing to the world. We can't take anything out of either. Don't put all your stock for contentment in the stuff you have in this world because you came into this world naked and you're leaving naked. Naked you came, naked you're going. You can't put a U-Haul in the back of your hearse. Ain't going to happen. But blessed be the name of the Lord because what is a profit of man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? And so what do we put our focus on? It's God first, but not only that, what do we look to for contentment, for self-sufficiency? It's Christ. The one that says, if you come to me, I'll fulfill your soul. And not only that, if you're thirsty, come and drink of me. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. I love that. Man, wonderful. Contentment's found in Christ. And that phrase is a great phrase. Godliness with contentment. It's a great game. Amen? Well, let's go on now, church. It says, I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testify the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you notice, circle the word keep, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, And the Lord of Lords, that's actually written along the side of Jesus Christ when he comes back at the Battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19. On his side will be emblazoned the words, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And what it's saying there is because Christ is coming back, be blameless, be people of holiness and godliness is what it's saying. A motivation for our godliness should be the soon return of Christ, that soon and very soon we're going to see our king. And how then should we be living? We should be living godly lives. And the key to living a godly life, according to what Paul says to Timothy, this is where the rubber meets the road, church, is keep, keep the commandments of God. That's our, last, our fifth point on godliness, godliness through obedience. Here's the bottom line. Bottom line is if you want to be godly, you've got to have a heart that says, I'm done. I'm done with living for the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. I'm done with the boastful pride of life. I'm done with pursuing all the stuff of the world, and I'm going to be obedient I'm going to keep God's commandments. I'm going to be a, peop, a person that is, is pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness. I am going to be obedient. Now, does that mean you're going to be perfect? No, you're going to struggle. You're going to make mistakes. I fail all the time. But I want to have a heart that's obedient. 
You know, when I first came to Christ, I was still kind of skeptical about this whole Christianity thing because I grew up in a liberal church that didn't teach God's word, and it was just a social kind of thing where we have social causes, and it's kind of like a, a wealthy suburb in Chicago, and it's just a bunch of rich people that just got together once a week. And then on Saturday nights, I'd go to some of the parties my parents would have with these other people that they went to church with, and they'd all get schnookered on Saturday night before they go to church on Sunday morning. And I remember even as a kid kind of observing that, and I didn't like church at all because I saw it as a colossal waste of time because nobody's lives were being changed. And then I got around some real Christians in high school. And they helped lead me to Christ. They witnessed to me. And one of the things I observed about these real Christians, they weren't phonies. They were doing their best to live for Christ. And they were obedient to this book in their lives to the point that they didn't talk like the rest of us in high school. You know, back in Chicago where I'm from, everybody used four-letter words all the time. We'd punctuate our sentences with four-letter words. And you get around these Christians, and they didn't swear at all. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? And then on the weekends, everybody else would be getting high or, you know, smoking pot or doing whatever else. Get around these Christians. They were real Christians. They didn't get drunk or high like everybody else in our high school. It's amazing. They were keeping the word of God. And I saw them as straight arrows. And I remember to the point, they were so serious about obedience that if you got involved with them as Christians, there was accountability to the point that if you weren't living right, you'd be held accountable. As iron sharpens iron, they'd be sharpening one of the points. You weren't comfortable being in their fellowship if you were a professed Christian and being a fake Christian. You'd be held accountable. And it was, it was the real deal. And then when I got saved and I got involved with them, I saw this real Christianity I wanted in. I wanted to be a part of that because it was real. What makes our Christianity real? It's our walk with Christ and our heart to live for him and be obedient to his commandments and keep his commandments. If you want to be a real Christian, you've got to have a heart that says, I am going to keep what I'm learning in this book. I'm doing my best to not just be a hearer of God's word, but a doer of God's word. Amen? Not going to be a perfect Christian. We're none of us are. We're all just sinners saved by God's grace. But God's grace should activate within our hearts a desire to live for the one that died for us in keeping his commandments. Obedience. Remember what James says again. Don't just be a hearer of God's word, but a doer. And that will produce godliness in our lives. Now let's close up our, our chapter. It says this, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Uh, there's actually a proverb that talks about that, that riches can often fly away like a bird. Just buy. You know, there's a, there's a phrase out there, money talks, right? And oftentimes money talks this way. Buy. Just have some teenage kids, right? Buy. Uncertainty of riches. Gone. Here today and gone tomorrow. And it says, don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. I like that. Instruct them to do good. To good. This is Paul talking to Timothy, the pastor, about the rich people in the church. He says, instruct those wealthy people to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Oh, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter, the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. Now, the word knowledge is talking about to know, and there's false teachers coming in saying they had secret knowledge. 
They're called the Gnostics. And Paul says, stay away from those false teachers that say they have a shelf, a secret knowledge of, of, of truth, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. And then Paul says this, close the letter. I like this. Grace be with you. So we've looked at uh, godliness. We've looked at godliness in our work, godliness in our doctrine, godliness in our contentment, godliness in our pursuits, godliness in our obedience. Here's the last thing. Godliness in our giving. And what he's saying there to wealthy people through the Word of God, Word of God is saying this, hey, if you're wealthy, don't be just rich in your stuff. Be rich in your good works. Don't just store up treasures here on earth, man. Be generous and ready to share with the wealth that God's blessed you with. That's important. It's important to be people that realize that all the stuff that we have has been given to us just for 70, 80 years. It's on loan from God. We're to be stewards. You know what stewards are? Managers of what God's blessed us with. And using our time, our talents, and our treasures to store up treasures in heaven. Remember what Jesus said, don't store up your treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break into steel, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven because for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And listen, you can't take it with you. Again, you can't put a U-Haul on your hearse, but you could send it ahead. And that's what he's talking about, storing up treasures in heaven. Here's what happens. You give to the things God's called you to give to your church and to missions and to helping people. Here's what happens is you're, you're sending the money ahead to heaven because when you get to heaven, there's going to be people that are going to thank you for your generosity because of your giving. Your giving, they came to Christ, and the giving you gave to the ministries that led them to Christ got them saved, and they're going to come to you in heaven and say, thank you, I'm here, because you gave to the ministry that led me to Christ. I was reading this week about uh, Bill Gates. Bill Gates, interesting, founder of Microsoft. As far as I know from what, everything I've read is he's lost as a rock. Doesn't know Christ at all. But you know what's interesting about Bill Gates is he's a giver. Amazing giver. I mean, this guy has started a, a foundation with his wife called the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. In the last 15, 20 years, he, he, he's giving, listen to this, 45 billion dollars. I didn't, that's not million. $45 billion to this foundation that helps with uh, world poverty. It helps with education for medical and other things around the world. It helps with disaster relief. It's helping uh, millions and millions of people with the $45 billion he's given in the last 15, 20 years. That's amazing. And what's interesting too is in 2005 or so, he was worth $54 billion. He's given $45 billion away in the last 15 to 20 years. You know what he's worth today? You do the math. That's $54 billion, $45 billion is given away. He should be, you know what? He's worth $100 billion today. You know why? Because there's a spiritual law, even for those that don't know Christ. Give, and it'll be given on to you. And when, when God sees people using resources to help other people, God will bless that giving, even if that person's not a believer. It's interesting, he's gotten a bunch of his friends together, his billionaire club friends, and he's challenging all his billionaire buddies to become a part of the billionaires club, where he's challenging all his billionaire buddies to give away half their wealth throughout their life to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to these other causes. And he's raised 154 
billion dollars just for his foundation through his billionaire friends, primarily people that don't know Christ too. Isn't that crazy? You know what I was thinking this week about that? If Bill Gates, who doesn't even know Christ, could have that kind of generosity and that kind of giving, how much more should we that know Christ be generous and ready to share and store up treasures in heaven with the wealth that God's blessed us with? Amen? How much more, if, if, we, if Bill Gray Gates that doesn't know God is given like that, how much more should we be people that agree with Jesus' words that said it's more blessed to give than to receive? And we got a good opportunity coming up here. You know, every Sunday we have an opportunity to give, but, but we're also, at the end of the year, we're doing what we did last year, and we're doing that box of joyish, that brown box over there. We're challenging everybody at the end of the year to give an end-of-the-year gift above your normal ties and ties. And 100% of that is going to go towards what we're going to build this year. Last year, we, we did the box of Joash. We said 100% is going to go towards the paying off of our mortgage for the 10 acres and all these buildings. And you know what? We raised enough money through the box of Joash last year to pay off all our 10 acres here and all these buildings, and we're debt-free because of that. Praise the Lord for that. Amen? Isn't that awesome? But, but, but this year, what we're going to do is we're going to do that box of Joash again, all the end-of-the-year giving above our tithes, that, you know, we'll, and we'll Christmas Eve, we'll take an offering, we'll put it all in the box of Joash, and 100% of that is going to go towards the building of a bunkhouse for our U-Turn for Christ ministry. We've already got the process started. We just applied for the permits for the zoning this week, and we're going to build a bunkhouse for U-Turn that will house 50 men just for phase one. We'll have 25 bunks in there. We'll have a recreation dining area. We'll have a locker room for the guys. We'll have a commercial kitchen, and we're going to build that in the next six months, and it's going to save lives for the kingdom of God. Amen? It'll be amazing. It'll be amazing. They're doing their pig roast this summer, and Pastor Jerry, the founder of U-Turn, is going to come out. And my goal is to hopefully have the bunkhouse built by the time Pastor Jerry can come out so he, as the founder of U-Turn, could dedicate that thing and pray over it at our pig roast. So pray about that, church. Pray about how you can use some of the resources God's blessed you with at the end of the year here, end of the year ta- you know, tax write-off, if you will, but end of the year giving for the U-Turn for Christ bunkhouse, 100% that goes in that. We'll go towards the building of this new bunkhouse. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm all about more beds for U-turn because every bed represents a life that we save. And we'll have the opportunity with this bunkhouse to go from having a capacity of 40 to 50 men on campus to 100. Wouldn't that be cool if we had 100 guys in U-turns going through discipleship and the Word of God and changing drastic life change in all 100 of those men? I think that'd be really cool. All right, so what did we learn about godliness this morning? Six things about godliness. Godliness, number one, in our, in our work, right? We are to be the best workers out there, honor our bosses, respect our bosses, and work and serve for the glory of God. Second thing we learn about godliness in our doctrine, precepts, instruction, teaching. Got to base our doctrine on the word of God and the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, godliness also in our contentment. Godliness with contentment <clears throat> is great gain. Then number four, godliness in our pursuits. Flee from the love of money and the stuff of the world and pursue righteousness, faith, and Christ. Put him first and pursue him first and then seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then number five, we saw godliness in our obedience, keeping God's commandments. Not just being a hearer of God's word, but a doer. Having a heart that says, I want to be obedient, done with disobedience. I'm going to be obedient. And then lastly, we learn about godliness, Godliness in our giving. 
Be generous, ready to share. Be people that are using your resources that God's blessed you with, not just for yourself, but for the kingdom of God and for the advancement of his cause. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, God, again for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't base what we believe or what we stand for by the different doctrines that are flowing through that aren't based upon your word, God. We, we base our beliefs upon the inerrant, infallible word of God, and we thank you for your word teaching us this morning, Lord. And Father, help us to be people that are people that are pursuing godliness in our lives, Lord. Help us to be people that are real in our Christianity because we have a spirit that says, I want to be obedient to the commandments I'm learning in your word, Father. And Father, I pray for people that might be here this morning that need to return as we talked about this morning, to their first love. They've been pulled away. They've wandered. And they need to come back to living wholeheartedly for you, God. Father, I pray that all of us today would examine our hearts and say, God, I want to get back to loving you first. Loving you with all my heart, all my soul, all my strength. God, we want to get back to being people that are sold out for Christ, our first love. Father, I pray for this area too, not only of obedience, but of giving, God. Help us to be people that realize it's more blessed to give than to receive, Lord. Such blessing and being generous, ready to share, storing up treasures in heaven, Father. Father, thank you again just for the exhortations of your word, God. Thank you, God, that you're in the process of changing each one of us from glory to glory into your image, God. We are Christians under construction, and we can be confident of this, that you, who began a good work in us, will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be those people that day by day are walking close with you, abiding in Christ so he can abide in us, and you can produce much fruit in us and through us, Lord. Father, I just thank you, too, for just the privilege of having a church that honors you and honors your word. Help us to stay on that path, Lord. Help us to be Bereans, searching the scriptures ourselves, students of your word, God, hungering and thirsting, not only after righteousness, but after your word, too, like newborn babes, longing for the pure milk of the word, that by it we may grow and respect our salvation, Father. Just, uh, again, Father, keep us on that track of godliness. And thank you, Lord, that it's not about us. It's about you working in us and through us. We pray for continued just power of your Holy Spirit to live those lives you called us to live, God. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.